In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Following the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption And the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from the Great White North And his studio beneath the stairs Here's Richard Rick Mixter, journalist, author, former TV news reporter, stays with us this hour discussing some of the uh, most remarkable storms and shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. We'll also get into uh, aviation disasters as well on the Great Lakes. And uh, Rick, again, specializes in maritime and aviation history. He's been awarded by the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History. He's been featured on PBS and the History Channel, served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, and uh, one of the most requested speakers on the Great Lakes. He's very versed in uh, everything from shipwrecks to lighthouses and, as I say, even aviation. The host of the Shipwreck Podcast at shipwreckpodcast.com and uh, the author of Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters and The Wheelsman. All right, so uh, that brings us to, obviously, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, this is... Um, as you say, perhaps the most famous shipwreck on the Great Lakes, the the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was a it was a real workhorse, um, and also I believe the largest uh, ship ever to to sink in in the Great Lakes. Uh, so take us back to November tenth, I guess. Well, the day before November 9th, nineteen seventy five. What was the SS Edmund Fitzgerald up to? Well, here's a steamship. 
project that at one time was the largest on the Great Lakes, um, but as we go to 1975, we now have 1,000-footer on the, on the Great Lakes. So it's not the biggest, but it's still among the biggest, as we remember in Gordon's song. Um, but it came up, and it was doing a, a, the typical run would be from Silver Bay, Minnesota, and go to Toledo, and that's where they would feed these uh, steel mills with these iron ore pellets. It, it pretty much only carried iron ore pellets, and it did that run from Silver Bay to Toledo so often that they called it the Toledo Express. But there were some problems, and I'm, I'm writing a brand-new book right now. I just finished uh, and proofing it now, talking about why she was at a different dock, and there were a lot of different things going on in uh, the environmental situation at Silver Bay. So she was actually coming out of... Uh, the song goes some mill out of Wisconsin. Well, it was actually a mill out of Minnesota, but a dock in Wisconsin. The superior docks there are, are huge, among the tallest on the Great Lakes, and they were taking on 26,000 tons of taconite, which isn't a full load for her. That's one part that Gordon did not get correct. Um, she wasn't fully loaded, and she wasn't going to Cleveland. She was going to Zug Island in Detroit. And she couldn't be fully loaded because in the river system, she would have hit bottom if she carried a full load or what the Coast Guard would allow her to carry in November. Uh, did you um, send a letter to Mr. Lightfoot to be happy to change those lyrics? I am in so much awe of Mr. Lightfoot, and I wouldn't be talking about shipwrecks if it wasn't for Gordon, um, his summertime dream album. Uh, but the mm. truth is there are some, some glaring errors from the, the Cook story in his song to you know the captain saying that water was coming in. Um, there's a lot of problems with it, but as many people point out, it's not a documentary, Rick. It's just a great song, and I have to agree with them. Right, right. Well, that was my first album as well, 1976, Summertime Dream. Is it, so that that song is what set you on your, your lifelong uh, passion for the Great Lakes and aviation and maritime history? It did for so many other people, but for me, truthfully, it was the fact that um, I covered a shipwreck. We had uh, the largest tanker disaster on the Great Lakes happen in my backyard in Bay City, Michigan, it was the Jupiter, and it had another ship that went by. It was offloading 3 million gallons of gasoline in 1990, and it ignited from the piling breaking off from a ship passing, and one man was killed. And I not only stayed out for two nights as that was exploding doing news coverage, but I also walked the melted decks of the ship when it was salvaged and pulled out of the channel, and uh, it was just fascinating to me. So I... I also had a, another station that scooped us on some video, and I managed to convince my boss that if they paid for my diving lessons, we would get good coverage too. And, and I've, I've won over six awards because of that uh, scuba diving license now and, uh, and did a lot of great stories that people still talk about. Oh, remarkable, remarkable. Um, getting back to the Edmund Fitzgerald, um, the um – the Fitzgerald was uh, accompanied by another ship. Was it the um, the Anderson? Was as they went up through um, Left Superior and they made their radio call. The Anderson was north of them at Two Harbors, and that was again the the common place for Bethlehem Steel, U.S. Steel, to actually um, come out of from there. So they met up with the Fitzgerald. They started to go up around the um, Devil's Island, which is where you make the turn. And at that point, you make the decision on whether or not you're going to stay really in the Michigan side or if the weather kicks up, and it had, there was already a small craft advisory, 
the uh, the ship was going to take the northern route, and the thought being that the higher you go, the the more protection you would get from those waves as they built. First coming out of the northeast, eventually they knew that this this storm that was now down in Oklahoma was racing towards Marquette, and it would eventually jump right over the top of them and and settle into Ontario, and that would change the wind direction. So. Both the Anderson and the, uh, the Fitzgerald were weather ships. They, they reported their positioning and all of the, uh, the wind directions and the speed and the wave heights and uh, helped to, you know, the forecast. And as they did that, they realized that they were going to take that northern route to try to, to get the minimum waves, and if they had to, they could hide up at Slate Island if the waves got really bad. And sadly, they made a bad call. And and decided to go for it and get to Whitefish Point, and that was uh, the exact wrong time to do it. Mm. Tell us about Captain Ernest McSorley of the the Fitzgerald. We don't know a whole bunch about him. I, I know from people who've known him, and I've, I've done probably more interviews with uh, the people who built the Fitzgerald, um, the men who sailed the Fitzgerald, the, the, every expedition that's been down, um, at least 15 interviews from you know, eyewitnesses that had a part of that. And McSorley was one of those unknown quantities. He was a quiet guy, but he uh, would work in the wintertime to uh, work on hulls. So we knew that he actually knew about the strength of a ship beyond what even a normal captain would. You know, these are guys that, that know about weather forecasting. Their lives and the crew's lives depend on it. And uh, McSorley had had a long run with Columbia, uh, Ogilvy Norton Company, and was on most of their ships. And he was now sailing their their. Uh, Queen of the Lakes for, for Columbia. That would be their flagship, where it was appointed by uh, Hudson, so it had the best furnishings. It was made to uh, have the best cook on board so that they could bring these presidents of National Steel and uh, other companies on board and wine and dine them to, uh, to keep their business. So McSorley was quiet. He uh, loved storms. Everybody, that, including the, the cook that I interviewed, said, he um, would not hide from a storm, and even the Coast Guard that investigated the loss of the Fitzgerald told me he was a heavy weather skipper, that they had looked at a decade on the lakes, and uh, every time the Sioux Locks had a boat come in during a storm, it was the Edmund Fitzgerald with McSorley at the helm. So I've also looked in my new book. I've, I've got at least seven gale force storms in 1975 alone that he went through. So he pushed that ship, unfortunately, to a breaking point. And uh, it just finally gave up. I mean, I'm reading here, though, that the Edmund Fitzgerald had won safety awards. They had eight years of operation without a time off uh, worker injury. So they had a good record. It was a fantastic record. And, and McSorley was a well-respected skipper. You don't give your flagship to, you know, a slouch. This was a great captain um, who did very well for the company. He brought the cargo in. Um, but unfortunately, I think that, you know, that ship was – flexing a lot in the storms. So one of the, the mates told me that it would flex a lot, and he got alarmed by it, and he looked at the captain and said, boy, that, that bends a lot, even just a 10-foot sea. And McSorley looked at him and said, sometimes it scares me. So we know that that vessel was a little quirky, um, and we know that the, it was in the hands of a man that would run it through anything. Uh, the bigger ships in that storm, the Blau, stayed behind Isle Royal and uh, didn't go out at 100 feet on the Edmund Fitzgerald. So, you know, we, we look, and hindsight is always twenty twenty, and uh, it's not nice to second-guess somebody, but uh, this was a captain who regularly picked the stormy routes and took them on, think, figuring he'd get through. 
So uh, the, the Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson were kind of they were sailing together, but the as I understand it, you correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Fitzgerald was a faster vessel, so it kind of just kind of whipped past the Anderson. Is that it what happened? Did, and Anderson had just been rebuilt. They added 90 feet into the center section of her, and uh, so she she was sluggish, you know, compared to the Fitz, which was you know 16 miles an hour. It could make good time, and they never slowed down. Uh, Cooper said in an interview that. Um, he never st stopped the revolutions. He kept going full out through the whole storm and didn't have any real problems with the storm until he had to turn around and, and go back into it. So here's the Fitzgerald kind of in the same boat. Fitzgerald went further north than the uh, Anderson did, so the Anderson kind of cut the corner. And as the Fitzgerald went down between Mishapakotten and Caribou, that's when they started getting to some real problems, and that's when he reported around 4 o'clock that uh, I've got water, you know, that he said, I've got vent pipes that are missing, my, my rail is down, and we've taken a list. And uh, that, you know, was an indication that he had been beat up. And as they came on the other side of Caribou, that's when the waves really picked up and where the Anderson took a, a massive wave that I believe sank the Fitzgerald. Uh, and so... McSorley was going to, sh uh, at that point, was he going to slow the Fitzgerald down so that the Anderson could kind of close the gap? Yeah, as they went through, he, he mentioned the damage, and he said, you know, I'd, I'd appreciate if you'd shadow me down. And it didn't really bother the Anderson that much. In fact, uh, Anderson's captain had been up all night. He went and took a nap. So I don't think that it was, you know, boy, I think we're sinking or we're in real trouble I think it was just, you know, we'd love to have you guys closer. So they did. They closed the gap from 19 miles mm -hmm. to about 9 miles. And uh, at the time of the last transmission, Captain Cooper wasn't even in the pilot house. It was the first mate that was talking to the Fitzgerald. And just as an aside, Morgan Clark, the mate, asked, uh, how are you guys making out? He was talking about the traffic that was coming out of the, out of the uh, Whitefish Point area. There were three saltwater vessels that could have been a problem for the Fitzgerald. Their radars were now broken, and the snow was blinding them, and they asked the, the Anderson to follow them on radar to make sure that they would get clearance between them and the other ships. And uh, that's when the Fitzgerald started calling for the, the beacon at, at uh, Whitefish and the light. They couldn't find it, and they were, they were starting to really realize that they were in the midst of a real problem. They thought that storm would take two hours to, to blow in, the way it was coming in, and unfortunately, it was a lot faster. And that Cooper had said that it, it was much faster than he really suspected, but he totally believed in his ship. He said that I, that ship always gets me through, and it did. And he believes that's why McSorley pushed on as well. Uh, the last message from McSorley, I guess, to the uh, Arthur M. Anderson was, "We are holding our own," and then he's never heard from again. That's it. It was very. Uh, Static on the radio, and they had a massive snowstorm start to come in. And of course, now by seven o'clock, it's it's about ten minutes after seven. It's pitch black up in the UP on uh, November 10th, and so they're looking for lights. They see a, a radar blip that they believe is a Fitzgerald, and then it gets blotted out by the the return from all of the snow that's blowing. And when that radar finally clears, they don't see the Fitzgerald. They can see the saltwater vessels, the the Nanfree and the Benfree. Aberfors are coming up, but they can't see the Fitzgerald. And so they start calling for the Fitz and uh, realize in a half hour that there's a real problem. So they try to call the Coast Guard, and that's a problem, too. It took them a half hour because of the power failure at the Sioux. 
um, for them to even get in touch with the Coast Guard. And then that's when the searches all came out. And and um, how much do we know about how how quickly it went down? That's the tough part because we know it, it many people say it was seconds. Uh, I believe it's more minutes. And as we start to look at the the bottom, not just the pieces, and I, I was you know very fortunate to be among the maybe 25 people who've ever dove it. Um, it's, it requires a, a submarine to spend any you know amount of time down there. There have been divers that have gone there, but it, you take a submarine. And uh, we haven't still, with six different expeditions, done a good pattern of where all the, the spill is of the taconite and why the pieces ended up where they did. So how fast that was is very disputed. Um, we do know that the Anderson looked at their radar, and it, it was just moments when they thought they saw it, and then the uh, wheelsman thought he saw a white light, and that would have been the stern light of the uh, Fitzgerald. But um, even he said on cross-examination in the Coast Guard hearing that he didn't see it again and he just dropped it, that nobody else in the pilot house saw it. So it, it could have been the stern light of the Fitzgerald going down. Uh, we just don't know. But we do know now that that stern is upside down, so it's probably not likely that, uh, that he saw much of a light in the, the way that it went down. Would that suggest that it broke in two before it sank? That's been the big argument. I mean, and, and I, I'll definitely get uh, people who will argue with me, but we know that mm -hmm. it's in two major pieces and that the, the one's on course, the bow is on course on 121 for uh, Whitefish Bay where it was trying to get to, and the stern actually went uh, almost uh, completely um, not the opposite direction, but a, a, a course that um, almost 90 degrees from it, um, and it's upside down. So at some point, those two separated in the midsection, disintegrated um, to the point where we only have parts of the bottom that are on the, the bottom and the, the plating is spilled all over. The big question is, did it take a dive, um, which I don't believe it did, um, or did it, uh, you know, just kind of break up on the surface and the, the stern section flipped over on the surface? And it's so difficult to tell with the pieces and, and with really, quite frankly, the limited access that we have today. Uh, 29 crew, um, are they all likely in inside the uh, the vessel? Well, that's where my story gets very interesting. We were the the uh, fifth expedition to go down to dive it, uh, the Delta um, submarine. And uh, right after my dive, which I was the third person on our team to go down and record the wreck and, and get my notes, um, I came back up uh, in the early afternoon just before dinner, and we had power left in the sub. So we allowed the tug owner and his son to go down um, just a, as a courtesy, and they found a missing crewman off of the, the port side of the vessel. And this, as um, I'm sure you remember, ignited almost as many headlines as when the ship sank. That, you know, the, the story had always gone that the, the lake, it is said, never gives up its dead. But here was a sailor on the bottom. And most uh, importantly, uh, there were blocks around the body that were clearly a life jacket. So this person, um, if they were on the Fitzgerald and they were right next to the wreck, um, knew that there was a problem and it put on a life jacket, which says a lot about those those final moments. Uh, was that uh, individual, was he identified? He wasn't. We, we've got plenty of close-ups, and that was part of our charter. You get a license with the, with the government um, to dive it, and uh, the Ontario police were given 
every foot, inch of our footage. And um, I, I am convinced that some of the close-ups that it would be possible, but out of courtesy, and of course the you know there was a maelstrom of of horrible headlines that came out about how you know we were pirates and how dare we do you know even talk about the body. Um, but with the attention that's been in there, and quite frankly, every expedition from the Coast Guard to uh, Cousteau to uh, Delta and, and even Harbor Branch Oceanographic. The newspapers always asked, did you see a body? It, it was very significant to the story, and it, it's why Gordon wrote the song. He didn't write it about the Bradley. He didn't write it about the Morrell, because most of those bodies were found. This was a mysterious wreck where 29 men vanished, and not a single body was found um, after the shipwreck. All they found were uh, broken life rafts and two broken life boats and a lot of uh, life jackets and a, a you know a couple of oars and uh, that was it uh, general debris so that was the big mystery and i believe that's why gordon was inspired to write a song about this particular shipwreck right at, right and he recorded it in one take as i understand it they played it from beginning to end one time and they nailed it that's amazing. And to hear that haunting guitar was originally from a, a guy from Detroit here. And uh, it, it's just the whole thing came together to be so hauntingly real um, that it, it led the guy that I dove with to spend $70,000 that was supposed to be his wife's dream home. It was that song and his meeting of Gordon Lightfoot that put him, I would say, almost possessed to, uh, to, to put together a team to go dive the Fitzgerald, and I was very lucky to be part of that team. Remarkable. Rick Mixter is uh, with us, specializing in maritime and aviation history, and uh, you can hear his uh, podcast, Shipwreck, the Shipwreck Podcast, shipwreckpodcast.com, and uh, his books, Bottled Goodbyes of uh, Aviation and Maritime Disasters and the Wheelsman, and uh, you're working on the, um, the book on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Do you have a um, a published date? I'm almost I'm, right now. I'm talking to the printers because the, uh, the I've self-published my first two and did very well with uh, both of those. And uh, it, it, it's going to be difficult post-COVID to uh, to promise a date, but I really want to get it out by this fall. Um, I've done a lot of work with PBS. In fact, I was employed there um, for a couple months prior to COVID when they laid many of us off and. Uh, I want to use it for the uh, the big pledge drives. We're, we're going to retool the documentary. I've done three different videos on the Edmund Fitzgerald now that are big fundraisers for PBS, and uh, I'd like to have it done for that. And, and all of the real guts of the story are now in there. Um, the, the parts that I wanted to show are all the behind-the-scenes stuff that's never been printed, um, especially on the building of the ship and, of the, of course, the loss of lives of the men that built it. Several, there was at least two people that died building it, and then go into the expeditions, too. So it, it'll be a one-of-a-kind book for sure. Did they ever uh, make a determination? Uh, was it uh, human error? Was it um, uh, structural damage? Was it a confluence of factors, Rick? That's our big mystery. In fact, the, the Coast Guard were the first to come out with their report. It took them about a year, and they actually dove down with a curved robot and searched the whole area um, to try to figure it out, and they found that some of the hatch clamps weren't put down. There's 21 hatches on that ship, and 69 of these Kessner clamps all the way around, and the ones that they found that were stretched out, they realized were clamped down, 
and the ones that were undamaged, they figure, were not hooked up correctly. So water was going in through the hatches in addition to what Cooper or what, uh, what McSorley had said uh, had been leaking in through his vents, those eight-inch holes in his deck now. So the Coast Guard said they thought it was ineffective hatch clamps, but they did say uh, we have not reached a complete, you know, uh, uh, reasoning for its sinking. And then the National Transportation Safety Bureau, which mostly does aviation, but was also very, um, they were at the, the initial trial for the, the uh, Coast Guard, and they came out with uh, the fact that the hatch had actually collapsed in. And that's what I found as I went over hatch one, was that it is completely crushed into the combing. And there's a couple of things with that. It, first, we know that Cooper took a big wave that damaged his lifeboat. That's 30 feet above the water. So here's a wave that's likely 30 feet tall, speeding past Cooper and the Anderson and hitting the Fitzgerald at about the time when the, uh, the vessel vanished. So it makes a lot of sense that that was that big wave that actually put her under. The question is, was it, was it structural problems? Was it the fact that she was loaded up with water? Why didn't the Anderson sink? But the uh, Fitzgerald did, and that's what's been that mystery that has kept so many of us still talking about it today. And how did the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, change rules and regulations in terms of uh, uh, maritime safety? It wasn't nearly as dramatic as some of the other shipwrecks that we've had, but there were certainly pre you know, pressure. The initial call was the Coast Guard said, we're not going to let you carry as much cargo in the winter. They figured you'd sit higher in the water and the waves couldn't get up to your hatches to cause problems. But there was a lot of resistance from the shipping companies who said, no, we believe you know, the Anderson that Captain Cooper had looked at the ship and said, boy, it was closer to Caribou than he wanted to be. He fully believed it ran over Chummy Bank or a mysterious six-fathom shoal that uh, the Coast Guard from Canada went over there. They had a survey ship called the Bayfield. I've talked to members of that crew who said they found nothing. I've seen their full report that found nothing that indicated that there, there was a six-fathom shoal. In fact, it was a little deeper than uh, was, was previous thought. So I don't think it did run aground at all. It was just a very convenient excuse, especially as $7 million lawsuits came in against the Fitzgerald. It was easier to blame McSorley for, unfortunately, making a bad decision, and that's why they were on the bottom. So I, I think that the, the verdict is still out on exactly how it happened, but there's no question in my mind it wasn't a giant wave that, that pushed her under, you know, that, that final coup de grace that uh, brought the ship into the deep water and uh, it never came back, and that's why no distress call was ever made. But 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 since the Fitzgerald, that we haven't had, uh, or I, I may be wrong, but we we haven't had a maritime disaster on the Great Lakes of, uh, to that degree, have we? We really haven't. I mean, we've had the largest ship on the Great Lakes, the Tregurtha, has run aground, you know, and, and that's certainly a shipwreck, and it was pulled off and recovered. And, and we did have major improvements that eventually came out. There was a fight to keep even uh, the exposure suits on board, which had been used in World War II, and by 1975, the Great Lakes weren't mandated to have them. It took years, but eventually they, they allowed that. Um, we did get better um, uh, satellite coverage. We launched a satellite in 74 to watch the Great Lakes from the, our equator, and that technology has gotten much better since then. Uh, we also have uh, buoys that are in the water that were launched as a result of the Fitzgerald 
they hoped for an entire network that would showcase, and I go into my book especially uh, on this, um, but they couldn't get the funding for it. So they put one in Lake Superior, and um, it was definitely important to have it there, but they had many problems with the early buoy, and then that was worked out, and it got a little bit better. So there were better improvements. Eventually, EPIRBs came out that helped to you know, track lifeboats or even personnel who could wear one of these that could be tracked by radio. Um, and, of course, you know, the cell phones that came out, um, we now have uh, where we can actually call up our own satellites right from uh, the, the pilot house of a ship and even track through Aegis the, the systems to follow other ships. So um, there's a lot of big improvements, not necessarily because of Fitzgerald, but the timing was right now that I think now we don't see it. And maybe because of the loss of a 700-foot freighter, even these 1,000-footers, when they see 10-foot waves, they just park and they don't go out. So maybe that's not so much of a, a safety improvement or as an awareness that um, they all sail right over where that gravesite is of 29 men, and I think that that uh, stays with them, it's certainly every time they hear the song. Have you ever been out on the water during a storm and, and been concerned? Yeah, I mean, we went out uh, to look for shipwrecks, and it was foggy, and we, we found some shipwrecks and got hung up on a shipwreck, and uh, it was flat calm, and by the time we got our robot clear and made it back to shore, we had eight-footers, and in a smaller boat, that'll make you say some prayers. Uh, we were in great hands with a fantastic skipper, so I was never that nervous, but um, I was also on board a research vessel, um, the Laurentian, that uh, I was literally hitting my head um, from my top bunk um, coming back in a storm. So it, it's nothing near of the men that I've talked to from, you know, 30-foot waves or the great storms of 1913 or 40, um, but it was enough to, for me to get an incredible respect for those waves. And uh, certainly by talking to all these sailors, again, probably no one has talked to as many uh, shipwreck survivors as I have. You get a tremendous respect for the the power of the Great Lakes and what Mother Nature can dish out. Uh, I, my father served in the Second World War. I remember he passed away many, many years ago, but I remember him telling us the story. Now, this was crossing the ocean on a big troop carrier. Would it have been the Queen Mary, um, I guess, or the Queen Elizabeth? I'm not, uh, Queen Mary, probably. Anyway, standing on the, on the back of the ship and the waves, um, the ship was rolling through the waves and he could, you know, look up and see the front of the of the ship from the back. That's how it's high the waves amazing. were. It just it takes your breath away just hearing the stories like that. The Wheelsman book came around from that because I not only had a World War II story of the, the Escanaba that had the greatest rescue in World War II, but then they mysteriously exploded and sank um, off of Greenland. And think of going into that icy cold water. So these stories are absolutely captivating, and I've been very honored to be able to preserve many of the stories that never had a song from Gordon Lightfoot, you know, and, and didn't get that preservation. And that's been kind of my charter, is to make sure that those voices don't go away. They're, they're all older gentlemen, and uh, to talk to the people that not only survived but also rescued them, it's been an amazing quest for me, and I've, I've, I've just been so proud to be able to do it. Well, speaking of World War II, this is something that I was surprised to learn, and that is the number of World War II aircraft that were lost in the uh, in the Great Lakes, something like 200 of them, I think mainly in Lake Michigan. When we come back, uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, uh, that if, uh, if you're good for it, Rick. All right, Rick Mixter will stay with us. 
Uh, back with more with Rick Mixter and Great Lakes storms and shipwrecks right after these. Call it the miracle molecule, carbon 60 or C60 for my good friends at C60Evo.com. And I take a tablespoon every morning. It delivers more than 172 times the power of vitamin C. C60 is a known antiviral, antioxidant, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory. It's a remedy that works. C60 Evo users consistently enjoy better sleep and wake up feeling refreshed. This alone is worth the cost of the bottle. I sleep like a baby. I have no aches or pains. Zero. I'm 58, and I don't have a gray hair on my head. Get your miracle in a bottle. C60 from c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Use the coupon code EVRS at checkout and save an additional 10%. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you have a medical concern, please contact your health care provider. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. We are back with journalist author Rick Mixter talking maritime disasters on the Great Lakes. We're going to dip into the YouTube live stream for some questions. GBGN1. I love these handles uh, on the YouTube live chat. GBGN1 asks, Rick, do you believe that in the future the Fitzgerald will be raised? No, I don't believe it will. I mean, the cost to do that is so incredibly high, and I don't know why that would be, you know, a, a, a need to do that as a museum ship. I, I wouldn't think we've got so many great, you know, representations of museum ships from the flagship Niagara to giant carriers like the Schoonmacher in Toledo, um, the Mather in, in Cleveland. There's plenty of good examples of you know, even Coast Guard cutters uh, that used to be in Kingston, Ontario, that are now up north. So I don't think that there would be a good reason to do that. The technology is certainly there, and the pieces are 260 feet um, at the maximum. So we have the technology to raise submarines that are that big. but. I don't think that the, um, to bring the bodies up would be one of the reasons. I know there's several crew members that wish, or their families that wish that we would do that, but it would just be, you know, millions of dollars to do it. Uh, Andrew Boyle asks, Rick, do you have any uh, paranormal stories related to shipwrecks? Well, we've sort of talked a little bit about ghost ships, and you mentioned that you haven't really been able to uh, verify actual sightings of the, uh, uh, the uh, was it the Bannockburn? Yeah, uh, but uh, are there any other ghost ships that you that there have been reports? There's been different stories, but again, everyone that I've looked at has had a tie to a storm. So, you know, a reasoning for it to vanish um, mysteriously, I I don't think so. You know, I mean, there's always the possibility of equipment failure. Um, I, I don't. Yeah, I wish I could say that I did. Um, I've had lots of stories of people who've had premonitions. Um, in the case of the Charles Price in the 13th storm, one of the engineers just decided, I'm not going on this trip. And all of his crew members were killed, and he ended up having to go to Goderich, Ontario, to identify the bodies that were missing. And they found the chief engineer wearing a belt from a different ship. 
Now, whether or not that was mysterious or that the ships were involved together, I don't put a lot of credence into that because if you look further in the newspapers, you see where people were robbing the bodies for collectibles. And the police, the Ontario police said, we will arrest people, and they started throwing equipment back on the beach. And that makes more sense than, you know, a, a ship that was found 19 miles apart from each other. So I, I wish I could put more paranormal, but a lot of it seems to have very good reasoning why it went down or what might have happened. But, you know, you look at the Western Reserve, you wonder, was it the design of the ship that it folded up? And hopefully if, if our museum finds it, we're in the right area, um, we'll start to, to maybe get some answers to those questions that have kind of haunted the lakes for uh, for decades. You mentioned pre premonitions. Now, this wasn't in the Great Lakes, but the Empress of Ireland, which sunk in the St. Lawrence. And my grandmother, um, her, I don't know if it was her best friend, but her, her, um, her friend was just married and uh, she and her new husband got on. And the, but the day before she got on, on board the Empress of Ireland, she, um, she cried and she cried. She didn't want to get on that ship. She knew something was going to happen. Um, and uh, sure enough, I mean, I think there are more lives lost on the Empress of Ireland than there were on the Titanic, weren't there? Absolutely right. It was an absolute tragedy in a river that you would think, you know, there wouldn't be a problem, um, that, that they'd be able to just make it to the shoreline. And unfortunately for that, it was very tragic and, uh, and a very mm -hmm. difficult dive. I've never dove that one just because of the, uh, the current and the depth and the murkiness there. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, YY Anella asks, are you aware of divers uh, of the wreck who saw a body, well, well-preserved by the cold? Well, I guess we've already sort of addressed that. They, uh, in the case of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, there was a, a body that was spotted that was pretty well-preserved. Yeah, it was on my dive, and it was within minutes of me surfacing that they went back down. So all too real and, and very painful for the, the families. They, you know, they don't like it talked about, and, and I understand that, but it's also part of the story. It, the, the legend of, of Lake Superior, and I, I go into my book about where that legend actually came from. It didn't come from the, the Chippewa on down. Um, I break kind of the mystery on, on where that story actually started. And uh, I think that there's more mystery because of things that are just kind of not understood. And as we start to really shine a light on them, it gets a little clearer. All right. Um, I guess I, I might have time to squeeze one more question in here. Uh, have, have any pre-Columbian shipwrecks ever been found in the Great Lakes? Not that we know of. Um, and I, I, I guess we're talking about pre-Columbus, like Christopher right. Columbus. Um, there's always been talk about the Vikings visiting and how a sword was found up in uh, Minnesota, um, but none of that has been substantiated to to my knowledge. And again, I'm not an archaeologist. I am a, a television journalist um, who's been doing this for about 40 years, looking at shipwrecks since 1991. Um, so I do not have an archaeological background or a knowledge of um, a lot of that stuff that goes much deeper. I've just been very lucky to have key eyewitnesses to the most famous shipwrecks that have gone on the Great Lakes, um, and, and certainly the stories behind the ones that are very, very old um, that, uh, with the people who discover them. So I, I, I've been lucky to kind of piece together uh, a background, but I cannot pretend that I went to college for all of this by any means. Why so many World War II aircraft crashing into the... Uh or disappearing in the Great Lakes? There's been a, 
couple of different reasons. The first were the two um, aircraft carriers. Because it was, it was easier to train pilots without having the danger of your aircraft carrier being bombed or, or torpedoed by a U-boat, if you went to the Great Lakes, you could, uh, you could practice all you wanted. So 17,000 pilots got training on board our two carriers. We, we built aircraft carriers on the lakes, the Sable and the Wolverine, and uh, of course many of those planes were ditched and, and many pilots were killed too. Um, mostly we we're, we're survived, but um, it's a dangerous business learning to land on a carrier that's moving. And so there's uh, all kinds of Avengers, and uh, I know there's Corsairs out there, and there's been people who brought them up and preserved them for museums, which is pretty cool. I also dove on an um, airplane that was lost by a Tuskegee Airman who trained at the mm. Michigan bases. And because I have such a, a background in aviation, I flew B-52 missions and F-16 flights, um, I, I was able to dive on this plane, that what was left of the Tuskegee aircraft, an Aracobra on the bottom. So lots of different reasons for planes to go down. Uh, my book also covers a, a balloon disaster with a daredevil pilot who was lost with a journalist, and we go into the bottles that were found after that as well. Oh, cool. Um, so there be uh, um, are there still a lot of aircraft missing from the World War II, like Hellcats and Thunderbolts and? There are. The Thunderbolts were more ground-based, but there's certainly a lot of the uh, the naval ones, and I think that they've got a good area of where they train from, so I think many of the easy pickings have already been you know, brought up. It also comes down to who's going to pay for it, and that's almost always the U.S. government um, is going to bring it up. So there's a very finite amount of planes that they'll, they'll pay for the salvage and, of course, the rebuild on one of those. And, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of great museums that already have those aircraft, too. So to, to take that on, it would be almost like raising the Fitzgerald. Is it really worth it? Um, and that, quite honestly, too, for the ones that might not be in super deep water, I hope some of them stay down there because the Great Lakes preserve them. And while they will eventually rust and fall apart, um, for divers, I think that's an interesting target. There's also a German U-boat in the bottom of Lake Michigan, too, that uh, was part of a display that came after World War I, and then they were told to dispose of it, and they sank it in Lake Michigan, and that's been discovered as well. So a lot of interesting things that are on the bottom. That one will probably come up, um, uh, maybe not immediately, but it, that's just too big of a target and too, uh, too visual to, to pass up. So my gut would be that they might might eventually bring that one up. YouTube live chat thinker asks, what was your most interesting wreck dive? Oh, that's like asking who, which kid I like the most and my, my, my children. <laughs> you can't because each story is completely different. The Fitzgerald, it, it captivated me. I was down there for nearly two hours and I saw, you know, the bow and the stern and, and the hatches and pieces that people haven't talked about before. But to talk to go to uh, the Nova Dock, which is only in 12 feet of water, uh, because I met two of the guys from there, that becomes very significant. I found another Christmas tree ship that's up on Manitoulin Island, up off of Barry Island, for people who've been up there on uh, Northern Lake Huron, and it's another amazing wreck that's just blown apart, and in many cases just a keel. So those bones still kind of speak to me because there's such a history, and with that one, a, a pictorial history of the loss of that ship, um, each one of those take on a special meaning for me. So I, I really can't pick one. Getting back to uh, aviation disasters on the Great Lakes for a moment, Northwest Airlines Flight 2501. Uh, it was a Douglas DC-4, 
carrying 58 people, uh, disappeared somewhere over Lake Michigan back in 1950. That remains a great mystery, right? It does. And, you know, when you're talking about a DC-5 or DC-4, um, that is definitely a, a big target. And there's a group cut with the um, uh, Michigan Lake Michigan uh, Research Associates that have been looking for that for decades, even working with Clive Cussler, the very famous uh, discoverer of the Hunley submarine and uh, so many amazing underwater books that he's written. Um, they put a lot of money out there and looked, and they couldn't find uh, any pieces of it. Divers have told me they found engines that they thought were from there but never brought any proof. Um, but certainly, yeah, three crew members and 55 passengers, that's a, a horrible accident. Those don't have nearly the, the attraction, and I, that's a bad word to use, but for me it's more of those big storms and the waves and, and how people survive that. That's what really kind of um, catches my interest. The, the men that would get into boats to row out to save these people, it's just amazing to me, and that's the part of the story that I, I'm very much interested in. It's not so much the loss of lives, and, and maybe that's because of my, my 20 years in television. You know, we see a lot of that sadness, and, uh, and that's just, it's just too tragic. In many cases, I don't even talk about the crew of the Edmund Fitzgerald, other than the key players that were involved in, in the loss itself, just because it is so tragic. Uh, someone on the live stream wants to know, and I don't have a name here, whether you've ever flown a de Havilland DC-2 Beaver. I have not, and what an amazing aircraft, too. And I believe that Han Solo actually flies one of those. Um, it would be amazing to be able to, to fly in that. I have had a little time in the Goodyear blimp um, and biplanes and stuff. I was just very lucky at the TV station to have a solid stomach that could take even the aerobatics flights. So Russian Sukhois, um, we, we even flew a bomber mission all the way to Germany and back and never landed in a B-52. So B-17s, B-24s, um, just fascinated by aircraft. And uh, it, it's only equaled by the shipwreck stuff that I look at, too, and lighthouses. Uh, one more shipwreck for you. We've got about two minutes here, Rick. And that is the, um, I, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, the Cornelia B. Windy 8. Uh, it sunk in almost perfect condition. It did, and it sank well away from where they thought it was supposed to sink. And we've seen this happen before, too, with a modern tugboat that went down, and that was probably an insurance job. They said it sank one place, and then it turns up where divers find it somewhere else. Well, the Windy 8 was found with its mast still up and considered to be one of the most beautiful schooners that's ever been discovered underwater. Since had two or three other discoveries that rival that, in, in the case of the um, the Kimball, which actually still has a cabin on board, is pretty amazing um, because normally those will blow off uh, from the water for the air pressure rushing out of the inside of the ship as it sinks. But the Windy 8 is, is uh, unbelievably beautiful. Uh, we also have vessels that still have figureheads on them, uh, dragons, if you will, or, or crocodiles on the Dunderberg or a ram's head on the Sandusky. Um, so there's some really neat stuff out there to, to, to go and dive, and anybody with, the, you know, even a, a, a beginner scuba diving can see some of these wrecks. The problem is most of the really deep ones are the ones that uh, need a submarine to do it safely. Wow, Rick, it's been uh, amazing uh, these last two hours. Thank you so much for, for hanging out with me, and uh, I learned a lot, and uh, it's just remarkable all this information that you've uh, you've put together again the the uh, podcast is shipwreckpodcast.com shipwreckpodcast.com the website is lakefury.com the book's bottled goodbyes and uh the wheelsman look for uh, uh, his new book 
coming out soon on the uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Rick, thank you so much for this. Thank you for sharing these with your audience. And anytime you want to talk about maritime history, I'd be love. I'd love to do it, Richard. Uh, we will. We'll do. It's a date. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.